Hi, this is Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 126. We just started very organically. And the next thing we knew, we were in 200 stores. Hi, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire. And you're listening to Gift Biz Unwrapped. And now it's time to light it up. Welcome to Gift Biz Unwrapped, your source for industry-specific insights and advice to develop and grow your business. And now, here's your host, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue, and welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. If you are a gifter, baker, crafter, or maker, and own a brick-and-mortar shop, sell online, or are just getting started, you'll discover new insight to gain traction and to grow your business. And today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Irene Costello. Irene and her friend Joan McIsaac founded Effie's Homemade. This is a wholesale baking company, and the inspiration for Effie's Homemade comes from Joan's mom, Effie, and her recipe for oat cakes. Effie grew up on a rural farm in Cape Brenton, Nova Scotia. Like many traditional farmhouse recipes, the uniqueness of oat cakes is in its honest and simple flavors. All of their products are based on this premise as Irene and Joan rekindle old-fashioned and forgotten recipes. Welcome to the show, Irene. Well, thank you. I have to tell our listeners the way we got together is I tasted one of those oat cakes and I turned to my friend who gave it to me and I said, OMG, these are delicious. (laughs) And I never get tired of hearing that. I bet. And I'm like, do you know who makes these? And she says, well, of course I do. And I said, okay, share. (laughs) (laughs) I have a little bit of an untraditional way that I'd like you to share who you are with our listeners. And that is by having you describe what would be your ideal motivational candle. So if you were to create one that represents you, what color would it be? And what quote would you put on your candle? Okay, so the color would be purple. Deep, deep purple. Kind of royalty-ish, it sounds to me. I guess, but I don't really think of it that way. It's a very rich color. I wear a lot of purple. I even have two rooms in my house are painted purple. My dining room and my bedroom, a light purple. Oh, beautiful. Wonderful. I love having it around me. And what would be your quote? The quote would be to listen to your inner voice, pay attention, and trust it. Interesting. Yeah, and there are certainly a couple of times in my life where I put that into practice and it's really changed my life. Yeah, you know, I don't know that we put as much value and emphasis on intuition as we should. Mm -hmm. You know, what we're telling ourselves. I think very often I'll hear people, and I've done it myself too, it's like, you know, I just knew this didn't feel right. Or, you know, I did it anyway, but something was making me second guess, but I still did it. You know, I wish I would have listened to myself. Pay attention to those feelings and the physicality of it, too. You mean like how your body reacts to something? Yeah. And it's, you know, I don't even like to use the word intuition because I think sometimes people associate with women's intuition. But it's more than that. It's an inner voice speaking. And, you know, are you on the right path for your life and, you know, happiness? That's interesting, I think, in applying to our listeners, too, because as crafters and people who are creators, a lot of times we think, oh, that's just going to be a hobby. And inside you're saying, no, but there's so much passion. How can I make money doing this? You know, maybe in your case, it was baking. We're going to get to your story in a minute. But you can't always ignore that inner voice. That's something that you really love, which could add a lot of value to your life. 
Right. And we'll get to that again. But when people ask me, you know, how would you advise somebody starting out in the business? I would say, one, listen to your inner voice, but also have a plan for the business and where you want it to be because it's perfectly fine if it's a hobby. If your passion's a hobby, that doesn't mean you have to go off and start a wholesale baking or pickling or wholesale food company out of it. Right. And what's right for some people is not right for others, of course. Well, let's get into your story. Tell us about Effie's Homemade. All right. Well, Joan and I are actually about to celebrate a 10-year anniversary. We started Effie's September of 2007, right on the eve of the financial market crash. (laughs) Well, of course you did. You just had to put one more challenge up there. Of course. And we're like, the markets were crashing all around us. And we're looking at each other in our brand new office and our brand new furniture that we bought and looking at each other and saying, ah, should we do this? And some really dear friends who we admired and who had been in the business said to us, yes, go ahead. In good times and in bad times, people will always pay for a premium product and you've got a premium product. So it's the middle brands that get squeezed. They encouraged us to continue on. And it was about six months later that we actually introduced the oat cake, which was February 2008. And that's our first in flagship product. Let's take it back and talk specifically about how you and Joan, as longtime friends, right, decided you were going to go into business together. Sure. Well, Joan and I have, uh, we grew up in the same town and we go back to high school. And I was a year older than she is. And we had mutual friends. And at some point, I had made a big career change. I'm one of those corporate people who jumped off the corporate ladder. And I was in financial services for many years. I had a pretty successful career, and I was making a lot of money. And I have to confess, I had those golden handcuffs on. I knew I wasn't happy there, and I had hit the glass ceiling. And I really looked around, and there wasn't anything else I wanted to do. That's a tough spot because you're making the money and everyone's like, well, why can't you be happy? You know, you've got it. You're making the money. It was hard. (laughs) Yeah. I had a similar situation. You just don't feel fulfilled. I mean, there's more to life than money. Right. And don't get me wrong. I like the money. But, you know, and I had a milestone birthday coming up and I just knew I cannot be here on the next milestone birthday. So I started to really think hard. One thing that just kept coming back to me was I love to cook and I love to have company. And how can I turn this into something that I can share with people? So I looked at going to cooking school and I looked around at a couple of places and then I realized, hmm, I visited a few cooking programs and they were either bachelor's degrees, which I didn't need. I didn't need to go back for four years or they were restaurant chef type of programs. And I knew as soon as I went there that I was like, I don't want to be a chef. I'm not looking to get into the restaurant business. So what is it? And then I found this program at Boston University. And it was such a eureka moment because I live in Boston and I live like a couple blocks away from the program and the school. I called the director and we spoke and it was just like, that's it. I'm going to go for it. And I started taking one class at a time. And then as I approached that milestone, 40th birthday, I was at a point where I told my manager that I want to go to cooking school and take a semester off. They were going to let me use this program towards my master's degree. And he let me take a leave of absence. And I left for about six months and I finished the master's program. And I never looked back. I never went back. And then I was on my own. I love how that comes together, though, because it's so crazy that the school was right near 
where you lived. It was what you wanted to do. It was going to work out so you did have a way to go back if you decided to. It's like the perfect storm. It all came together for you. It really did. It was very clear. Listen to that voice. Right. And then Joan and I reconnected after several years. We had a mutual friend who heard that I was doing this and he said, oh, you got to reach out to Joan McIsaac. She went through that same BU program, the culinary program, and she's a caterer now. She's a really famous caterer in Boston. I'm sure she'd love to talk to you about you know, some of your ideas because I kind of had an idea of you know, where I wanted to take this. And so I called her and we spoke a few times and then I ended up doing a couple of jobs for her, catering jobs. And we'd be talking and you know, she's like, you know, I really like what you're, I'm hearing. I really like what you're saying. And I didn't really mean to be in the catering business this long. I've kind of thought about a couple of things myself and, you know, could we put our heads together and kind of think up a business together? I'm like, okay, sure. And we tried a few. Ruby Chard was her catering company. And she wanted to transition that into cooking classes because she's a fabulous teacher. And I like to teach. And so we did that. We took her catering brand and we transferred it over into uh, team building and culinary events. And the idea was that eventually we would find our own physical space to build out these programs and build out this sort of have a retail component to it and a food service type of component to it. And we were doing this around 2004 to 2006. And we were renting spaces for our team building classes, and it just like the planets all had to be aligned to get one of these gigs to come together because we were trying to schedule kitchens and manage company schedules and you know just get everything put in place while we continued to look for our own physical space. And we finally just looked at each other and said, "This I don't think we can sustain this, and we're not finding a place. And that was really good timing for us because, as I mentioned, you know, the market crashed soon afterwards, and I'm really glad we weren't in that business <laughs> trying to keep afloat with a lot of overhead. For sure. Well, you know, the other thing that you guys did is you really projected into the future, is this a life we want to lead? Because if everything has to come together in that manner, you're always under stress. You know, like you're not able to focus then on what it sounds like you guys loved, which was actually doing the cooking classes. You're focused on all the logistics behind it to make it happen. Right. That's a good message, Gift Biz listeners. It's not a failure if you pivot. If you get into something and it's just not working or it's not feeling right, I mean, just like you're saying, you know, it's just not sitting well with you. There is nothing wrong with adjusting your plan and pivoting and trying something else out that's different. Absolutely. And we pivoted a few times. We had a few business plans and would have an idea. And one that kept you know, sitting on the back burner was the idea of wholesaling Joan's mother's oat cakes. And when she was a caterer, she used to make them and she knew that they had a very nice following. Her customers loved them. And so we said, okay, let's take that off the back burner and just do up a plan and see if we can make it work. And that's what we did. And that was the business plan that we ended up pursuing. Okay, so you're going to try the oat cakes because at that point you didn't know if it was going to work or not, but it had been in the background, etc. What were the first steps that you take to start your business? Oh, there are a few steps. The first one was how are we going to make them? <laughs> how are we going to scale up her mother's recipe? Are you meaning like commercial kitchen, you know, where you're going to make them? Exactly. Okay, gotcha. 
right? You know, first we have to scale up the recipe for large scale production. Okay, I'm just curious. This has nothing to do with anything, maybe. But if you are making a cookie recipe just for a family, can't you just quadruple or 10 times the recipe? Or does that change? Does the whole recipe kind of change? Yeah, the whole recipe changes because you have fat, you know, from butter or shortening and water, the eggs and the leavening, it will, you know, need to be altered. It it doesn't just scale up by times 10 or times 100. All right. And a lot of times it's the uh, feel of the dough and how thin the dough is because our products are rolled out. They're not drop cookies, but the thickness and the oven temperature and the type of oven that we're using in a commercial setting, it's very different from a home. Okay. The first two things you had to do was first figure out where you're going to produce the product and then test, I guess, and adjust the recipe so that the result is what you're wanting to bring to market. Right. And so we had a friend who had a pie shop who let us work in her pie shop after hours. And so we would be there working on the recipe. And we actually also wanted to test market it. And so we brought it to a Christmas fair because we weren't really sure how much to charge for them. And so we took it to a Christmas fair and we charged $6 for a bag and they sold out in 30 minutes. We were gone. Like, well, one, we didn't make enough. And two, nobody has a problem spending $6 on a bag of cookies. So this is great. So, you know, we just started getting a little bit more of affirmation from the marketplace. So we, you know, using the Friends Pie Shop, but that was not going to be sustainable. We knew we needed a different kind of production method to really scale up our output. So, Irene, for someone who is thinking of doing some type of a consumable where they're going to have to produce like this, reflecting back, do you think it was good, even though you knew long-term you're not going to be able to produce out of your friend's pie shop, was that a good way to start on a small level so you could really perfect the recipe and then test the acceptance of the product in the market? Would you suggest that to people, to do it that way? Oh, sure. Yes. And there are incubator kitchens around. They're becoming very popular. And in Boston, there's the Commonwealth Kitchen where you can go in and rent kitchen space time and produce and then test your product in the marketplace. And they help you set up with farmer's markets or small scale wholesaling. And it's a great way to, without making a huge investment, to test your proof of concept. The other thing is that we learned in talking to friends is that we needed money to help start up and investors aren't interested in building a kitchen for you. They're not interested in brick and mortar. They're interested in what's your brand concept and how are you going to make it grow? So that has nothing to do with the production. And probably a little known fact among you know a lot of people is that a lot of food is actually produced by what's called co-packers. These are people who, on a contract basis, will make your product to your specifications. And that's one that that was the way we ended up going. We did not build out our own commercial kitchen. And it was great for us because, you know, as much as we both love to cook, you know, remember, I didn't really want to be in the restaurant kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I wasn't looking to be in a commercial kitchen. You know, while I'm the marketing and, you know, Jones and marketing and product development and the creation of the product and the day-to-day operation and production is down with our co-packer and they worry about staff showing up today and the equipment is down. That's not our problem. That's their day-to-day responsibility. So it's nice. 
I really like that you brought up the way you and Joan decided to take the business. So instead of focusing on production and employees and building out a space for production, you two have elected to do the co-packer thing, like you say, and then look at how do we continue to scale this business more from an upper level, like marketing getting into, I was looking at your website, and I'm hoping we're going to get to that a little bit later, but you're in so many stores coast to coast, and you know, you've got the volume, and your brand is right on, your website is fabulous. So I'm guessing those are the more upper tier things that you guys are focusing on these days. That's right. And also starting out, you asked earlier, you know, what were the things that you did first and creating the brand, we spent a lot of time creating the brand, the image, and working with a designer to come up with our logo and just what are we trying to convey in this, you know, and all the artwork and the colors. And for every new product that we came out with, we knew we would need a color palette. So we had to kind of think into the future a little bit because we launched with just the oatcakes, which is not sure, you know, how that might be a little unusual. (laughs) But they're so good. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And so, yeah. The other thing, neither Joan nor I had retail experience. You know, we, Joan's a chef and uh, I came from financial services. Um, I knew how to sell, but not to retailers. So, you know, we had to crack that nut next. And we did it by going door to door to the retailers around the Boston area. We knew who the good shops are. And we started literally door to door bringing baskets of our oatcakes and asking them if they'd like to sample them and bring them in as a trial and then would deliver them the oatcakes if they ordered two cases. And, you know, we just started very organically. And the next thing we knew, we were in 200 stores all on our own. And looking back, that's a drop in the bucket. (laughs) Would you say that if you were looking at starting the business and your vision was where you are now, it would almost look unachievable. Being in 200 stores, like how do you get from virtually cooking in your friend's pie store after hours to that seems such a big leap. But as you're talking about, you went in local, it was smaller steps and then other steps that built upon that, but all small steps that led to where you are today. That's right. And, you know, one thing that I think I've mentioned a couple of times that we consulted with friends who were in the business. And that's one thing that I always recommend to people who are thinking of starting this is just go talk to people who have done it because we got a lot of really good advice. And one of them was we thought would be like hot diggity dog if we got into 60 stores in the first year. And uh, somebody that we were working with doing some pro bono consulting with us said, "Uh, no, you've got to be in 500 stores as fast as you can. So you're like, oh, yikes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to be profitable in a couple of years, you know, 60 stores is not going to cut it. So that we got a lot of really good advice and there's a lot of resources out there for people who are thinking of starting this because it's not easy. And there was a lot that we didn't know. As a matter of fact, Joan was like scratching her head one day and was like, we don't know anything about wholesaling or retail. I was like, yeah, I know, Joan, but look at all these other people that have done it. We're smart. We'll figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God, it's really hard. (laughs) And seriously, people who decide that they can't, that's where everyone stalls, right? But going through, being resourceful, learning from others who have gone before you is how you figure it out and how you get somewhere versus just stalling and saying, you know, that's a big, nice, big wall that people can make an excuse and they can't jump over because they don't know. 
And you guys clearly didn't do that. But you did reference that it wasn't always easy. So I'd like to go there for a minute. Can you share with us something that was a real challenge and what you did to overcome it? Sure. Yeah. There have been a few of them. I think the first ones right from the starting gate was getting money. Again, we started right on the eve of the financial crash. And we knew banks are not going to give us money. (laughs) So we didn't even bother going to banks. We went to friends and family. And going back to that was part of the co-packing decision also, because we knew we weren't going to have a quarter of a million dollars to invest in building out a kitchen. So again, that co-packing idea that really kind of solved itself for us. And then, you know, what we focused on was the branding, a website and building our sales. So we were actually able to start the business on about $60,000. The other thing that you were talking about that I really liked was that you laid everything out, you had the plan, you were talking about this a little bit when you're talking about your branding, that you weren't just looking at the oat cakes initially, you were looking at where you wanted it to go for the future. So you had a plan started and created. I think it's hard when you start the visual representation of your business, because you're starting with a white piece of paper, like it can be anything, (laughs) right? Right. So those types of things in terms of, you know, where then you spent that 60000 was a lot of it in the pre-planning. Now, of course, it had to be production because you had to produce the product. But it sounds to me like you got professional help with your branding. And that is like all important because if you don't land your branding and the message and the way you're going to appear to the world, that could break you if you don't get it right. Absolutely. And we invested in professional design firm to help us create not just the package, but, you know, again, the whole brand concept. Did you do that right from the beginning? Yes. Okay. Interesting, because a lot of people wouldn't. A lot of people would try and take that on themselves at first, because you can, right? But it sounded like that was the right way to go. And Gift Biz listeners, I will encourage you, we're going to talk a little bit later about how you can get to the site. Your website is beautiful. Oh, thank you. I love it. You know, in terms of it's very easy to navigate around. It's very personable. Nowadays, everyone wants to know a little bit about who they're doing business with. And since you're wholesale, we would be another business who would be purchasing from you. You want to know who you're starting to do business with, and that they're reputable and they're strong and the story behind the brand and all of that. And it's all shows on the website. It's beautiful. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Do you have any advice for somebody? And I guess, you know, you don't always have to go that way if funds are limited. I mean, I would say 60000 is a nice little kitty to get started with. Not everybody has that. But are there any ideas or thoughts that you would give someone who's going to have to tackle this themselves? Any suggestions since you've been through a more formal process? Well, you know, that's a hard question. You know why? Because the technology's changed so much since we started. And I really appreciate your comments about our website because our marketing people are saying right now, like, oh, you got to change your website. It's really outdated. <laughs> so it's really nice to hear your comments about it because that was an expensive website to build. And now today you can build a website off of a template and, you know, Bob's your uncle and you're off, you know, selling on Shopify. And the technology has brought us there with just like really rapid development tools. So on one part, it's great. The other part is you have to keep up with it. Sure. Well, Gift Biz listeners, if you want to give Irene a little bit of informal market research, go take a look at the website and comment <laughs> on the podcast, you know, on Gift Biz Unwrapped later and tell us what you think. I personally think it's great. So, and I'll give you the reasons later. I'll put it on my own post as an attachment to this. 
You always want to refresh and adjust and revise, but I think it looks great. Thank you. Okay, let's talk a little bit more. So you're talking about how you're needing to get into retailers and you didn't really know the retail industry. So you started small, you're going into shops in Boston, getting your product in the store. My guess is that they're giving you positive feedback and reordering, which is how you started to grow. What was the approach to get in besides walking in with samples as you were doing? Is there something else you were doing then or you do now to help scale the sales of the business? Well, two things. We knew right away that, you know, we had a product called an oat cake. And that's a confusing term. What's an oat cake? The product came down from Nova Scotia. And, you know, the history of the oat cake is that it came over from Great Britain and Scotland. And then the recipe was modified, you know, in the New World. They added butter and lard and sugar to it. And today, an oat cake up in Nova Scotia is very different from an oat cake that's produced in the UK and Scotland. So just understanding like what the product is and educating people, we knew was going to require a lot of sampling because people would look at the products like, well, what is this? And it wasn't until they tasted it that they got the wow factor. I'm like, oh my gosh, as you did. (laughs) Yeah. Well, wouldn't you say that's a pro and a con? It's a con because as you're talking about, people don't really necessarily understand it, so they can't relate to it. But it's a pro because you're the ones who have these and nobody else does. Yes, it's a challenge and it continues to be a challenge. And when you look at our other five flavors that we came out with, we continued on <laughs> to make it even more challenging. <laughs> we came up with a corn cake and a cocoa cake and a rye cake and a nut cake. But it has to align with the brand. So that makes total sense. Right. Now we've got a lot of sampling to do, but sampling is key to our marketing and our sales effort. So are you going out a lot to trade shows now as well for sampling? Well, what we do, Sue, is we put a bag of samples in every case of product. So when the retailer opens that case, there's a little bag of bite-sized pieces, and they can take that out, and they can put it out and give it to their customers. So that moves product within existing establishments. Like I know you're in, around us, you're in Whole Foods. Are you in Whole Foods all across the country? We're in seven regions of Whole Foods. Okay, so lots of Whole Foods stores. You're in Mariano's here in the Chicago area. What are you doing because you can't, well, I guess you can send samples to other chains that you're looking at getting into, but how do you approach some of the new chains that you want to carry your product? Oh, we'll call them up or we're working with a broker and we'll find out who the buyer or the category manager is. It's different for every retailer. And now that we're working with the larger retailers, as I mentioned, there's a category manager slash buyer and they'll have uh, category reviews once or twice a year. And so you get your samples over to them and they'll try it and they're looking at your packaging and they're looking at the whole brand concept and deciding if they're going to remove a, a few SKUs and make room on the shelf for new SKUs, then they'll give you a shot. Right. I mean, wholesale is a whole different ball game for sure. Oh, it is. Yeah. Would you ever look at doing both or are you solid and strong with wholesale only? Doing both like to sell direct to the consumer? Right. Yes, we do that on our website. You do on the website. Yep. And we're also doing it through Amazon. Okay, good. Good to know. So Gift Biz listeners, oat cakes, they're my favorite. I tried, I think, three different samples, but oat cakes were the winner for me, the original. (laughs) (laughs) They're all delicious. Thank you. Okay. And then what is it that you can do to affect your ability to stay in those stores? 
Is it a customer relation situation or is it making sure your product arrives on time or what is it that you can do so that you can keep your shelf space for the product that you have and then build on that? Right. So one of the most important things and takeaways that I heard once at a seminar was, you know, you think you've gotten into the store, which is great, but that's the beginning of the race. Staying on that shelf is when the race really begins. And so to do that, retailers, the larger retailers, they're expecting you to do promotions, you know, offering temporary price reductions, you know, a couple times a year. They want you to place ads in their circulars. They might want you to do coupons. There are all sorts of marketing programs that they have that they want you to sign up for. But promotions are probably the most important. And along with that also goes all of the materials, all of the physical materials that go along with the promotion too, right? Signage and all of that. A lot of times the larger ones will do it themselves. Okay. You know, so they're not looking for us to do shelf tags or shelf talkers necessarily. As a matter of fact, Whole Foods won't even take them because they have their own in-house art department. That might vary by retailer. But yeah, sure, they'll be very interested in pairing cards. One thing we realized early on, especially with the sampling, was that our products go really well with cheese. And so one of the things that we do to help educate the store is to show, you know, how great our products are with different kinds of cheeses. Got it. That helps sample and then that helps sell both products. So this is really interesting, Irene, because we've established already that on the production side, you're with the co-packers. But a lot of the things that you're talking about now require a lot of time and energy and analysis. Can you give us a little feel for how you guys are structured over in your corporate building? Like it's you and Joan. Do you have other people helping with marketing or give us a little feel for how this all comes together so beautifully? Yeah. Well, because we're using a co-packer, then over here, we're pretty lean. We're a lean shop and we do a lot with contracting out very specialized services. So we don't have our own in-house designer. We use an outside designer. We don't have an IT department. We use a web developer and an IT person. But we do have customer support in-house and a marketing person in-house. And we also have a marketing consultant that we work with. We also hire brokers to help us with our sales force and get the reach because we can't be in California and Chicago all the time. So we have people on the ground who are covering parts of the United States for us. Well, that's a great look at what you're doing over there. Not everyone is at the size you are. You know, They might aspire to get there, but they're not in the beginning. And hearing that someone at your level and the size of the business that you have outsources, I think is really helpful and comforting to a lot of people because you can outsource for the small tasks you need or the big tasks you need. And when you're outsourcing, those companies are able to take all different sizes of businesses and they have the knowledge and the skill already. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to learn that. So don't be afraid, no matter how small or medium or large you get to consider outsourcing for certain things. I think that's a great ad. So thank you very much for sharing that. Sure. There's a lot going on there. How do you keep everything under control and productive? Like, is there something that you're using within your day, whether it's an app or some type of a program? What are you doing that you find is really useful that keeps you in line with everything? We have a couple of programs. First, you know, we're using we're a QuickBooks shop. So, you know, we're QuickBooks is doing all of our invoicing. All the invoices and the orders come directly to us and we get them in right away. 
And QuickBooks has a wonderful reporting capability. So we just kind of had to think through how our accounts are structured and how do we organize our distributors versus our direct accounts and different sales channels that we're in. And we're able now to just sort of categorize all that and then manage it and report on it through QuickBooks. But the other thing that we've been doing, and this has actually has caused us some pain, but I think we're on the right track now, is we use a customer relationship management system. And we just moved over. We're still in the process of converting to a product called TurnLink. TurnLink? TurnLink, yep. Interesting. And what do they do? Actually, it's our third or maybe even our fourth CRM system. And we went with it because it was developed by people in the food retail space. And so it just has a lot of that industry knowledge about the supply chain and how product moves and how, you know, at the different levels of reporting that you need. For example, we started out direct. We still maintain our direct accounts and we'll still drop ship to stores who are independent retailers. But when you start going through bigger chains, they are going to require you to work through a distributor. So we had to start working through distributors and learning what that was all about. Now about 80% of our business is going through distributors versus direct. So we know what's going on in our 500 direct accounts because we're the ones that are taking the orders and talking to them regularly. But once they go over to a distributor, we don't sometimes even know who they are. And so we really put a big push on getting information from our distributors about who they're selling to and capturing that information and putting it into our CRM system, which has this nifty little feature called Map My Stores that's tied seamlessly to our website. So when you go to our website and you're looking for a store and you want to know, okay, who's within 10 or 25 miles of my zip code, it will come up with a list of stores for you. And those stores now may or may not be stores that you know we do business with directly. They go through a distributor. But we've gotten their names and we've gotten the addresses and we can track them now. Well, and that's exactly what I did <laughs> when I wanted to see if you were around me. That's how you knew we were in Mariano's. Exactly. And Deerfield, which is right up the road, Deerfield Whole Foods. So hopefully they're going to have the oat cakes because I'm going to be on my way to pick some up. Oh, good. Well, they better. <laughs> they better. <laughs> What else do you do to stay current within your industry? Well, we belong to an organization called the Specialty Food Association. Have you heard of that? I have. Okay. They have great educational programs throughout the year. And they have absolutely, for anybody thinking of getting into wholesaling a specialty food product, definitely look up the Specialty Food Association. And look at their educational pages. They have a lot of tools and programs that you can learn everything from the basics of starting your own business to understanding the sales channels to pricing to promotion and just a really good wealth of information out there. And so much of it, I'm sure, is online too. It is. Yep. And you get a good discount if you're a member on some of the tools. Oh, but you could use it even if you weren't a member, you just pay more? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Every time I go in now, I'm already signed, you know, in as a member. So, you know, it's like, oh, it's free because you're a member. So it's an annual fee or something like that. Yep. You pay an annual membership fee. And then you also can go to the fancy food shows, which are their two industry trade shows each year, one in San Francisco and the other in New York. Know those shows well. <laughs> right. Okay. So we do those. Do you exhibit at those? We do. We have a booth. Okay. 
and we exhibit our own products, but then we also work with the distributors who were there because if buyers are out visiting their distributors, we want them to see our product there. Right. And then hopefully they'll stop off and see us too. So Gift Biz listeners, the fancy food shows are January in San Francisco and June in New York. And I would walk it once, maybe twice. Wouldn't even kill you to do it three times before you actually do it. (laughs) It's totally overwhelming. And take the classes and just get a feel for it because it's an enormous show. But you have to have a business to get in, which is one of the great things about the show. You have to show and prove that you have a business of some sort to be able to get in. Right. It's for the trade. It's for the trade. Right. It's not a public. Right. All right. So now we may have completely overwhelmed some people listening here. So let's take it back to, do you have any advice for someone who's starting out who looks at what you've done and is like, oh my gosh, this would be my dream, but it sounds like so much. I just don't even know where to start or what I should do. Do you have mm-hmm. advice for that person who's listening right now who is motivated but doesn't know the first thing to do? What would you say to them? Two things. One, again, find these resources because they are out there, like the Specialty Food Association. See who's making not competitive products, obviously, but similar products in a category and call people up who have done it. One thing I notice in this industry, especially smaller companies and and people who are in startup mode, we're a very sort of, there's a lot of camaraderie and they're very nice people and they should talk to you. A lot of people helped us along the way. And so Jones and my motto is pay it forward. So we're happy to talk to people if you're listening and you have a specific question about starting up. We'd be happy to spend some time on the phone with you because people really helped us a lot and gave us a lot of like incredible insight. There's no magic formula for how to do it. It all depends on your personal plans and lifestyle and what resources you bring to it. There are a lot of different ways to success. But do know that if you're going to go into wholesaling, you know, have sort of an end game in mind. Think about 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, you know, depending on what your age might be. Because this is also going to be Jones in my retirement. So we have a very specific financial sort of goal (laughs) that we have to meet. That's really important. Yeah. As you're building a company, are you building it to sell down the road or are you building it for extra income right now? That's really important because that goes through what you're going to name things, how you're going to work everything, how you're setting up your systems because you want to make sure to set up systems so that they can get transferred off. Just like all the stuff that Irene was talking about. That one is really super important too. So great. This is wonderful. I now am going to invite you, Irene, to Dare to Dream. I'd like to present you with a virtual gift. It's a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for your future. So this is your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you would wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it in our presence. What is inside your box? You bought me a house. Oh, I did. Tell me, what does it look like? You did. It's a house on a farm. I'm not going to be a farmer, though, because I don't have that one more career left in me. (laughs) But I just want to be on a farm-like setting, maybe have some chickens and maybe some sheep. And I'm going to have my dream kitchen with people who come and visit me. That sounds wonderful. Yes. (laughs) So just like you have your plan for when you're done with the business, you have your plan for what's happening after that, too, which is awesome. Right. 
And I have to stay in good health so by the time I get to enjoy it. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. And how can our listeners get in touch with you or take a look at your website or where would you lead people if they want to see what you're all about? Oh, sure. Well, our website is effieshomemade.com. And my email is Irene, I-R-E-N-E at effieshomemade.com. Perfect. And you were so generous to offer up that people could get in touch with you. And you know, you're not the first person within the baking industry who has said how generous everybody is within that area. I think it was Rebecca Wilbur of Rebecca Naomi Cake Decorating, just Mm -hmm. a couple of episodes back, who was saying the same thing, that within your particular industry, people are willing to share and help and advance. And I think it's also because nobody can copy exactly what you're doing. Clearly, nobody has the recipe, but the style and everything you bring to the business, just like how you were saying that there's a lot of different ways to success, same thing. Nobody can do exactly what you're doing. Right. So I think that helps with people being willing to share and support each other, too. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, Irene, you've given us such a good look. I kind of like peek behind the door a little bit at what wholesale is all about. So really interesting. I appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. And I kind of say along the line of the theme with the candles that we started out with is generosity is when you light someone else's candle with the flame of your own. And that's what you've done by just giving us, you know, some information and a behind the scenes look at what you're all about. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And I have to end with saying that my wish for you is that your candle always burns bright. Oh, that's nice. Yours too. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Gift Biz listeners, that's a wrap. And thank you for joining me today for the show. I wanted to give you a couple of announcements here. I have just recently gotten back from Podcast Movement, which is a conference for the industry of, you guessed it, podcasters. And just like I say to you that you should be continually upgrading and educated and learning everything you need to know about your industry, that's what I've been doing with podcasting. And so I've come back here and I think I want to switch some things up for the show. For a while, I've been challenged because I try to make these shows evergreen, meaning any show that you watch is going to be relevant for any time frame that we're in. And that's because these shows are meant to teach and train and educate and motivate you as you move forward with your dream, your creative journey, your vision for your business. But towards that end, I've eliminated a lot of time-sensitive type information. For example, if I'm out at trade shows or if I have a course that's open, things like that, because I felt like it would affect the integrity of the ability for a show to be evergreen. Well, I've talked with a couple people over at Podcast Movement, and they've convinced me that that is not the case. Even though we have listeners who might just start listening even today, this is their first show, people like to go back and look at different shows, even from two years ago. And for the most part, I think everyone understands that they are produced at a certain point in time, so there may be things that aren't as timely or available anymore versus when a show might have been broadcast. So you're going to see me popping in here in a more natural way from this point forward. And with that said, I have three things to tell you. The first thing is feedback. I would love to have feedback from you guys on the show. What's good? Is there something you'd like to see that isn't included at this point that would help you out? Or 
any information at all, feel free to send me an email, and that would be at sue at giftbizunwrapped.com. Secondly, this September 10th through the 12th, so that's September 10th through 12, 2017, I'm going to be at the Philadelphia Candy Show. Now, a little crazy, but the Philadelphia Candy Show is actually in Atlantic City this year. I'm at booth number 418, and again, please stop by if you're gonna be at the show. And finally, I have a little request of you. It would help me so much if you are one who listens to the show on iTunes, if you would be so kind as to subscribe to the show, which is great, because then you always know when new episodes come out, and also if you could give me a review. I'm hoping it's a five-star review, but honesty is the name of the game, so anything that you want to put there is fine. I know that iTunes doesn't make it very easy to figure out how to do this. It's always a challenge, but let me just give you a little bit of direction. On your phone, all you would do is tap that purple podcast icon and then tap on the search button, the microscope. Enter in the name of the podcast, Gift Biz Unwrapped. And then you'll see right there, there's a little button you can do review and then write a review. I would so appreciate your doing that. And honestly, I don't mind if you want to put in a little bit of PR for yourself too. Tell me your name, tell me your company if you'd like. And I don't know if you've noticed, but over on our website, giftbizunwrap.com, we do a scrolling image of all the reviews that come through. So this could give you some extra publicity as well. That's all I have for you today. Thank you once again for joining in with me, and I will catch you on the next show. Today's show is sponsored by The Ribbon Print Company. Looking for a new income source for your gift business? Customization is more popular now than ever. Brand your products with your logo, or print a Happy Birthday Jessica ribbon to add to a gift right at checkout. It's all done right in your shop or craft studio in seconds. Check out theribbonprintcompany.com for more information.